Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Elizabeth Holmes. Another week in the trial and another juror replaced. So what does it take to make a mistrial? Well, it's interesting to note that jurors have things that happen to them. And this is why we typically will start a trial with alternate jurors. And the longer the trial that's scheduled, generally they'll have more alternate jurors because life happens to people. Things happen with people. And in this case, under the federal rules of criminal procedure, according to Rule 23, a jury consists of 12 people unless, you know, and there are exceptions to that. So at any time before the verdict, the parties may, with the court's approval, stipulate in writing, meaning that they agree, that the jury may consist of fewer than 12 persons or a jury of fewer than 12 persons may return a verdict if the court finds it necessary to excuse a juror for good cause after the trial begins. So with four alternates at the beginning of the Elizabeth Holmes trial, we have the opportunity for up to four people to leave without there needing to be special dispensation to avoid a mistrial, meaning not enough jurors are seated and we can't come to a conclusion. So it's really interesting to note that, again, you can have fewer than 12. I believe, you, and at least on the civil side, you can go down to as few as six for a civil trial. But the whole key here is to allow people to have, you know, there's the right in a criminal trial to a trial by jury. And, and so that's what this is all addressing. But yes, a mistrial is possible if you lose too many jurors. What happens if there is a mistrial? Oh, so if there's a mistrial, so the judge will declare a mistrial. And what that means is now the process essentially starts over. That doesn't mean that the they have to rewrite briefs and they have to go through any of all, all that pretrial stuff, but they will have to go through jury selection again. There may be a different judge that hears it. It could get reassigned to a different courtroom depending on the, on the schedules. And there's a lot involved in that. Um, but that process starts over. We start at day one, voir dire, selecting the jury, and then beginning at day one of the trial. Sometimes prosecutors or defense attorneys may want that to happen. Do you think that's the case here? When this juror was talking to the judge, the defense made it clear that they were not comfortable with this juror remaining. So do they have any interest in there being a mistrial? You know, that's very interesting. I, I've been thinking about that quite a bit. Why would the defense want this juror to go? And the prosecution, I believe, also agreed 
they didn't so much agree as they'd said, well, their language was they decided not to fight it. Okay. So in other words, they're like, okay, we're going to go along with what the defense is saying. And this one is so interesting because the juror is being let go because he or she wasn't paying attention because they were playing Sudoku instead of paying attention to the trial. If I'm an attorney representing the defense in this case, and I believe that their attention matters, which it does, by the way, jurors paying attention really does matter. So the defense is probably right to say, I want this juror gone because if they're not paying attention, they could have already formed an opinion. Would there be any advantage to there being a mistrial on the part of the prosecution? Could be as well. If they feel like they're not landing their points well or that the cross-examination has been particularly effective and they see that jurors are responding to the cross-examination, undermining their witnesses, the prosecution could feel the same way. We're like, hmm, this wasn't a very good jury for me, so I'd really rather have a different jury or I'd rather take the chances on a different jury. So that's these are the calculations that are almost impossible for us to make because we're not in the courtroom viewing every single thing that is transpiring. And again, what we know so much about human communication is nonverbal matters. You know, there are, I promise you, there's at least one member of the defense team who is sitting there observing the jury, measuring their physical responses to what is happening during the trial. And this is, it's a big part of the calculation. So they do pay attention to this. And I think the defense was just like, look, this person's not paying attention. I'm concerned that that juror already thinks that Elizabeth Holmes is guilty and I don't want him here anymore. As you pointed out, the juror who was dismissed was playing Sudoku and one of her fellow jurors told the court clerk that this was happening. Is there any penalty for this? This juror was dismissed, so is there any fine or penalty? No, not just for for this. This is not doesn't rise to what is called at least punishable jury misconduct. At least in California, if you're going to be found guilty of misconduct, you have to do something really specific. Talking to people who aren't on the jury, for example. If you're off talking to a reporter after, you know, the jury's let go for the day, that's misconduct. Speaking to a fellow juror about the case um, outside of official deliberations. That would be misconduct. Refusing to deliberate. And again, this is in California, at least. Uh, conducting an independent investigation about the facts of the case. That's why they're not supposed to be on the internet reading about the case. Or purposely concealing personal beliefs or experiences that would influence impartial deliberations. Those are the types of things that lead to misconduct. Or again, if you're caught taking a bribe from somebody, you know, any anything that's obvious like that. But, but simply playing Sudoku is not misconduct that rises to a punishable form of misconduct. But I just have to caution, that's wrong. When, when you're an, a juror, you need to be paying attention. That is your job is to pay attention. This juror said that playing Sudoku helped her 
pay attention. She says that when she's at home, she crochets to, you know, focus and pay attention. She has to be doing something with her hands in order to pay attention. And I know a lot of people are like that. They need to be doodling or drawing or something, um, coloring, but that actually helps a lot of people to listen and to focus. Do we ever make any accommodations for these types of individuals like we would someone who needs wheelchair access? It it would be possible to accommodate something like this. The issue is the juror didn't go to the court, meaning the judge and Judge Davila and say, hey, I have an attention deficit issue and I need a fidget spinner or I need, there are a million like these new devices to help people stay focused who are unable to stay focused but you are responsible kind of like at work the way our disabilities laws work the employer doesn't get to guess whether you have a disability you have to bring it up to your employer and say i need accommodation for this disability and the judge then in that case judge davila would say hey we can accommodate this 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 or this And we can't accommodate you playing Sudoku because unlike a fidget spinner, Sudoku requires mental focus. And Sudoku is a terrible excuse for having an attention deficit issue. But a fidget spinner, I think that might be very possible that the court would accommodate that. But again, it's incumbent on you, the juror, to ask for the accommodation. This last week, we heard more from Daniel Edlin, formerly of Theranos, who worked very closely with Elizabeth Holmes. The jury did see a PowerPoint presentation that Edlin helped prepare along with Elizabeth Holmes with a lot of exaggerations and false claims. The defense tried repeatedly to object to the jury viewing this key evidence. As an attorney in a trial, aren't you supposed to be careful about what you object to? And how could the defense possibly find something to object to here? This is a trial where the claim is that the defendant was making false claims and the prosecution then presents evidence to support that claim. How can the defense possibly object? This is so complicated and it's so much deeper than, again, TV shows ever seem to show us. First, exhibits, which is what this PowerPoint presentation is, are generally agreed to before the trial begins. So the defense knew that this PowerPoint was potentially to be used during trial. They had their opportunity to object at that time, and maybe they did, and the judge overruled them. It is the job of the defense attorney to do everything they can within the rules of the court, of course, to protect their client's interests and assert and provide the strongest defense possible. So here they could have then objected during the trial itself, even though they maybe did during the exhibit list phase pre-trial. And they can object on any number of things. It's immaterial. It's irrelevant. It's incompetent. It's hearsay, lacks foundation. I don't know what they objected to. It's speculative. It misstates evidence. I I don't know what their exact objection was, but of course they can object. And to your point in your question, you can object too much to the point where the judge gets ticked off by it 
and says, that's enough. I've already answered that on this one. So if you keep repeating, I'm going to find you in contempt and I'm going to give you sanctions. So a judge can do that as well. However, I'm not mad at the defense when I look at something like this. I see them as doing their job. And guess what? If you're the defendant, you want your defense attorney to give you the best possible defense. But here's the other aspect that doesn't get talked about that lawyers will talk about amongst themselves. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Sometimes an attorney will object to something even though they know it's going to be overruled or they're going to make an argument in a meeting, in a conference, a meet and confer because they're doing it for their client. Their client wants to see them making a bigger issue out of something that the client believes is a big issue, even though the attorney knows it's a losing argument. Sometimes attorneys will make those arguments to make their client happy, even though they're, they know they're going to lose. When they object, don't they usually have to then and there on the spot list the legal reason for their objection? Yes. And, and so there's like a list of valid objections that are used. It's civil, criminal, so they're slightly different. But like in the case of criminal, there are, I, I can give you the list of what the objections are. It's everything from admitted, meaning you've already, we've already, it's already been admitted, you know, into evidence argumentative, you're arguing on purpose just to get them to change their testimony, asked and answered. Actually, I don't want to give you the whole list because it goes on and on and on. But there are standard lists of objections that can be used. And by the way, here's the other thing that's really interesting. If you don't object at certain key points and make the objection, you lose certain arguments on appeal. So if I don't object to a certain piece of evidence being admitted, even if I know I'm going to lose, I still have to do that because on appeal, I lose the ability to say they did this wrong at trial because I didn't object. So back to that previous question as well, it is important for attorneys to make objections because that preserves the ability to appeal on that issue. So, you know, again, there are, I, I don't, I, I don't know the number, but it's something in the, in the range of 20 to 25 standard form objections that are used and they need to be used by attorneys as well. The general counsel for Elizabeth Holmes, for Theranos, very clearly instructed the company to remove such claims on their website as highest quality, unrivaled in accuracy, and highest levels of accuracy. Now we have on record at least three people, Sunny Balwani, her partner, who she's also accusing of abuse and control. Kate Beardsley, the in-house counsel for Theranos, and Jeffrey Blickman, the spokesperson for Theranos, 
strongly suggesting to Elizabeth Holmes that the language being used was misleading and inaccurate. The response from Ms. Holmes to this four-page email from the in-house attorney suggesting that she change all the language and make it more accurate, her response was, quote, They should not use the words unrivaled inaccuracy, as we've discussed many times, unquote. So only acknowledging that one statement, what does that say to you about her state of mind? And if you are the in-house attorney, how do you handle that response? So first off, I've been in a general counsel before, and the job of general counsel is is broad and varied, but in any position for an attorney, it's to provide advice. So a client, in this case, the client is the company you work for, can choose not to take your advice. And the attorney is always looking at things through the lens of potential liability. How do I minimize exposure to liability? And knowing that marketing puffery is normal and in our country is generally even, I don't want to say encouraged, but the laws are pretty clear that you can use all kinds of adjectives to describe something. The key is that it's not objectively measurable. So that idea of unrivaled accuracy is objectively measurable. And the only way you can make that assertion in marketing material is if you have a lab test or something like that to confirm this objectively measurable description that you're providing. But things like, oh, it's the, one of the best products you can buy. It's it's a high quality, it's highest quality. That's not objective, that's subjective. And so that is totally acceptable for companies to use. And you see that all the time. It's very frustrating to people because they go, it's not the highest quality. This thing sucks. But that's your subjective interpretation. So something that's objectively measurable, you have to be very careful of and you have to be able to support it. Things that are subjectively measurable, generally speaking, you can get away with and you're not going to violate Federal Trade Commission rules on advertising. So this is a constant tug of war that happens between in-house counsel and be honest, the rest of the business who's trying to sell stuff. So what I just heard there is generally normal to my ears is something that happens with, you know, great regularity, I should suggest. mentioned before that this trial comes down to intent. Did Elizabeth Holmes intend to deceive people? Daniel Edlin, her employee who worked very closely with her, who was on the stand last week, being questioned by the prosecution, answered a question saying that he didn't think that that anyone intended to trick the investors. And he said he he meant Quote, I was speaking both about my intent as well as about other people's intent. I assume he's referring to Elizabeth Holmes by saying other people's intent. But John Bostick, as he continued to press Edlin on this point, he asked if he has the, quote, ability to read minds. 
and determine if others intend to deceive. And Daniel Edlin had to acknowledge that he could not read minds. Isn't that so much about what finding intent comes down to? It, it's so hard to prove intent. Yeah, it's the totality of the circumstances. And that's, I will would wager money that on cross-examination, the defense will ask Mr. Edlin, well, how did you determine that nobody had the intent to deceive investors? And Edlin's answer will be something along the lines of, it's the totality of the circumstances. I observed them in these different environments and I watched them and I heard them and and these are the things. And, and that's how a jury is supposed to determine intent too. The prosecution has to lay out Again, in a criminal trial beyond a reasonable doubt that there are all of these circumstances, these different events that lead you to believe that somebody intended to do something. Because again, you're not going to hear somebody say, I intend to deceive the investors. I will lie to take their money. That's just not how it works. So it's the all of the circumstances around it that show what goes on. And again, the defense's job is actually to point at people like Mr. Edlin and go, well, wait a minute, you worked with Ms. Holmes and all these other people day in and day out. You observed them on a regular basis. You interacted with them on a near daily basis. And you didn't believe that they acted with the intent to deceive anybody. That is actually extremely powerful for the defense. This again is a terrible move in my mind on the part of prosecutors. How are the prosecutors calling this guy as their witness, asking him that question and then letting that sit there, that, that seems to be really harmful to their case. I'm actually a bit shocked to hear that that was their questioning that led to that answer, as opposed to the defense's cross-examination that led to that answer. This is, this is not good. I don't know how else to say it. I look at what the prosecutors are doing here, and if I'm interested in finding justice and I believe that Elizabeth Holmes has done something wrong... I look at what they're doing and going, man, how are you guys dropping the ball on this? It, th there are too many of these events that are happening during this trial where I'm like, wait, you asked the question that led to him going, no, they didn't have the intent to deceive anybody. This, this is a problem. This is really a problem. And I feel like they're not doing enough of their homework preparing for this case. It just feels like it. We heard from Dr. Shane Weber, formerly of Pfizer, who through a series of questions pretty much laid it out there that the Pfizer logo that Elizabeth Holmes used on a report was not approved by Pfizer, which makes it essentially forgery. Who would be responsible for going after her for forgery? Because that's not one of her counts in this trial. Well, I, I think it's really important to note that the witness who said that admitted as well that there are many other people at Pfizer who were interacting with Theranos. So just because that witness didn't approve it doesn't mean somebody else at Pfizer didn't approve it. And that will be up to the defense now to present some evidence, testimonial or physical, you know, an email or something else that shows that somebody else at Pfizer approved it. If they didn't, well, but, well, that's kind of damning against Elizabeth Holmes. Now, 
The, the question, though, comes to forgery. Forgery is almost exclusively used when done around a financial instrument, such as forging a check. Something that has a direct pecuniary gain, financial gain, for the person who fraudulently signed something on behalf of somebody else. Now, could there be a civil charge from Pfizer against Theranos or Elizabeth Holmes? Possibly, but that's such a minor charge because, again, there's not a direct financial result. Direct financial result, not indirect, direct. Again, forgery is almost exclusively used around things like I forged your signature on a check that I went and cashed for $25,000. That is direct. That's the financial result. You forged it. This is using somebody's, this almost comes in, falls under a, a trade issue that you used somebody's trademark without their permission. And now we're getting into intellectual property law and that's totally different. And that wouldn't be a federal prosecutor's job. Again, that would be Pfizer needing to press an improper illegal use of their mark without their permission. And that's a civil trial and there's not enough money in it for them to bother, I think, at this point. And to clarify, ultimately, it's fraud, not forgery. Yeah, this, this doesn't fall under the, the forgery law. I don't see how this would be forgery. Thank you for listening to Law Junkie Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And if you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. Follow us on social media. We're on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And visit us at lawjunkieshow.com. You can send us a message there on the contact form or at info at lawjunkieshow.com. We really do love to get your questions, your comments, your ideas for upcoming shows, and send us your legal questions. Disclaimer, Law Junkie Show, including its guests and hosts, are not giving out legal advice, but discussing general legal issues. Law Junkie Show does not guarantee that the legal issues discussed are fully accurate, and it's not specific to whatever legal issues you may be experiencing. None of this advice is to be acted upon in your situation. Please seek legal advice from a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction for your individual legal matter.